Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. When trust is low or absent, can leaders build trust back again? And if so, how? I'm Ron Huntley, and our guest today is Dr. Pastor Laurel Buckingham, who now runs a leadership institute for church leaders in Atlantic Canada. Enjoy his wisdom as you enjoy this conversation. Lift off and the clock has started. There are two things that I'm passionate about, leadership and Jesus Christ. <laughs> and one of the people in my life that has been an example of, of love for the church, love for Jesus, and love for leadership is Dr. Laurel Buckingham, who is our guest today. Welcome, Pastor B. Hey, it is great to be here. And when you said leadership in Jesus, I, I wondered if that was the order or not. <laughs> but I, sometimes I think I slip into that. You know? <laughs> That's true. Let's change that around. Jesus and leadership. I love that. There you go. So, so true. <laughs> Pastor B., I, you and I met when I moved to Moncton. I moved in Monk, to Moncton in 2000 uh, to be a part of the pharmaceutical industry. And so I was new to the community. I didn't know anybody there. And, and I met you through a, a neighbor who kept inviting me to her church, uh, this Wesleyan church. I live almost right beside. And, right. and one day I went to mass and then went over to the church because she asked right. me so many times. And well, I have to say, what I experienced that day changed me because of the level of hospitality, the joy, the music, the preaching, the children's ministry. There's just so much that you guys did that I thought, wow, boy, if we could be good at this too, that would make a big difference. And then meeting you was just such a treat because you were willing to be curious, invest in me, and we started a beautiful friendship. And I was always so grateful for that. Well, same here, Ron. And the interesting thing, I remember where you sat, and I would see that smile I see right now, and that would just put the old fire in me to help me <laughs> drive the point home. <laughs> well, that you did. The church itself, when when I first went there, I was just so taken by the size, and not just the size of the building, but the amount of people that were going, and then the amount of people serving in ministry. It just seemed to be so many competent, contagious right people. And that's then it grew again while you were there. And and so, you know, did you inherit that big church before the, the next bill? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Well, my first Sunday in Moncton, we had 65 people. And we had a little tiny church downtown Moncton. The only property we had was the very property that the church sat on. Never had one parking space. And now that building burned down. And now it has parking for eight cars. That's how that's how much property we had. And now we have a property that will we have parking for eight hundred cars. So <laughs> you can see it's been quite a journey to go from there. And not only that, same as what we have in all groups, traditionalism that was hindering us from going forward, creating all kinds of barriers and people resistant to change because they were so comfortable with the way things had always been. And breaking through all of that and doing the things that were necessary uh, in order for that to happen. That was monumental, really, when I look back at it now, to break through those barriers and what it took 
and and the growing I had to do in that yes. process, you know, early on. And so then uh, the final analysis, we were running close to a couple of thousand people and and an auditorium that would seat a couple of thousand people and several building programs in the middle of all of that. So it's been quite the interesting journey over 45 years. That's beautiful because it's, yeah, and that's just it. I hope you guys heard that 45 years pastoring this church and taking it from 65 people with no parking space <laughs> to, to a campus that can seat a couple of thousand people and, and really minister to the broader community. And so, you know, I know in terms of the coaching I do, I often say I, I'm not going to invest in somebody unless they're committed to long, unless they have the bishop's approval to the commitment to long-term leadership, because right. that turning something around is not a short-term endeavor, is it? It sure isn't. And I'd like to just speak to that for a second. Uh, I've never known any, or, well, a church, well, I'm, I'll, we'll stick with the church. I've never known a church to have sustainable growth over a long period of time without a long-term ministry. Now, let me just clarify. I need to qualify that. Okay. That is no guarantee. True. Marriage has got to be right between the pastor and the people and the, and the trust relationship. By the way, let me just say this. The number one factor in seeing things go forward is for the leader to build trust. And that is all 100% on the leader. There cannot be an entitlement mentality that because I am the pastor, you ought to trust me. That just goes south on you and causes mistrust. And so building, the and I would say preface it by saying this, the ability mm. to build trust. And when that happens, people will be open to truth if they trust you. Mm. But they don't trust you. They're not going to be open to the truth. And, and even on controversial issues, they will trust you in relation to controversial issues. I mean, they will be open to the truth of, in relation to controversial issues if they trust you. But that's a two-way street. You have to put trust in them and sometimes take risks in that process. So true. And when, when I think about that, the whole idea of, you know, because in our tradition, there it's, it's really easy to see where trust has been broken. Like we have a lot of scandals sure. that have rocked our church. It's an old tradition. Fair enough. Yep. And so, and so, and, and priests move from church to church every six yep. to eight years or 10 years, it seems. And, and we just have this rotation schedule. At, um, and, and, but in, in your tradition, in the Wesleyan tradition, I'm sure that there are times when a, pre, uh, a minister has to go into a community that's gone through a difficult time or maybe some type of And they're starting from a place of non-trust. Like you must have coached people like that. There's a, listen, in the dealings that I have, and I do, I do consultation, consultations with churches. That's one of the things I do. I go into some places where there is what I call a deficit of trust and is systemic. It has de been developed by pastors doing stupid things over a period of time. And, and, and so it's system. And then I make recommendations about going forward. In those situations, the recommendations can even be controversial because they don't trust. I go to another place where the leadership has developed trust. So the people love the leadership. And I could get up and say, Mary had a little lamb, and they'd be excited to hear me say it. Because of, of, of the surplus of trust rather than a deficit. It is the difference between 
day and night. Sometimes I, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes it seems like leaders want to move forward based on best practices and good ideas. And they, they think that that's going to win the day. They, they, they'll invest in strategic plans. They'll, they'll hire consulting firms to come up with all of these things that are well planned out and well thought out. And we're going to move forward because this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And they don't have trust. They don't have trust. And those very things that they bring these people in to help them with become polarizing because of lack of trust. But when there is trust because of a leader who loves, knows how to love his people and put the and build them up and listen to them and 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 be open to their ideas. So there's collaboration and all of this. I'm telling you what. The sky is the limit in what can be accomplished. All right. So there's some listeners, there's some priests listening to this all over the world right now and bishops. And they're saying, huh, if I had a gauge right now, the trust gauge, like a gas gauge on our car, mm-hmm. it's running in the red. I, I, we've been going forward. We've just been hoping time was going to heal everything. And I just, it's not. And I have a deficit. What would you say? To that person, what are some things that they might want to consider to well, dig? Let me, let me two, three things. Okay. And I hope I don't overtake time here, but I listen. Don't to worry about time. Let's do this. <laughs> talked on and on and on. Didn't even have to ask him any questions. So I, I'm going to follow his example here now. But but one of the things that I would say in relation to that, a leader has to earn that trust. He has to earn it by his love for the Lord. He has to earn it by his love for the people. He has to earn it by his work ethic. He has to earn it by his creativity. He has to earn it by his passion. He has to earn it by his vision. He has to earn it by his energy. There's just any number of things, and the entitlement mentality will undermine all that. I had no expectations, and I never expected people to do anything for me whatsoever, even in any kind of a personal way or anything else. I just, but what happens when you have that attitude, it comes back to you. You can't stop it from happening in a greater way than if you wanted it to happen or tried to make it happen, you know? So that that's one major factor. Pastor B, I'm going to pause you for a sec because I just, sure. so, because I, I love what you're saying and I just want to understand better. How would I know if I have an entitlement mentality? Like, give me some clues that I could self-reflect. I think if you're just always thinking about how the people should be treating you and what the people should be doing to cooperate with you and what the people should be doing to encourage you and all this stuff. What I practiced here, and I know different traditions. In fact, you talk about your tradition, oh, she jumps every, all those things are factors in any tradition. But one of the things I broke, I broke the mold with here. And, and, and I realize, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here in regard to your tradition. But the idea when I first came here, you come into the church, you're very reverent, you're quiet, nobody says anything to anybody. And and you just come in and sit and pray and so on and so on. You sound very Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like that's not community. And and so I started going up and down the aisles and greeting people, and loving on people, and talking about their cat, their dog, or whatever I could think of uh, to ask them about. And I practice 
meeting with people, uh, interacting with people a half hour before every service, a half hour after every service. And that's caught on. So that became spontaneous on the part of our people, not total spontaneous, not totally spontaneous, because we even had to have a here for you group that was covert that would go around introducing themselves to new people, then turn around and introduce that new person to somebody else, just to make for community and make people feel welcome at home and like you love them and you're interested in them. I remember hearing a person, you're going to love your pe-, a preacher say one time, you're going to love your people. I thought, well, I love my people. What are you talking about? And well, it's got to have some action to it. You, it's, you, you've got to take action on that. And so anyway, that is uh, one of the things. Now, I forgot what your question was. So, no, you answered it. It says, how do I understand that I have an entitlement mentality? And you were just saying that, you know, I'm more concerned about how people aren't yes, treating yes, me. Yes, and it's I all about refuse, I refuse to think about what they should be saying to me or how they should be, uh, their attitude towards me. And I know of pastors who won't do what I did because they're afraid somebody's going to have something negative to say that will throw them when they get up there to speak. Well, I practically wouldn't allow anything negative because I came on strong initially with them and nobody wants to say anything negative. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I have the gift of exaggeration. But uh, so to go on with that, but here's the other big thing in a very practical, practical way. Yes. We have to have critical conversations. Mm difficult conversations individually and in groups or whatever to build that trust because they, people come to it from a deficit especially if you're following somebody else where there's been a mistrust they're going to they're going to take that out on you and you're going to take a personal and think it's because of you and had nothing to do with you had something to do with the previous whatever happened and so so here is I just got to zero in on this, building trust. We're, we're kind of inter, in, into an interesting zone here now. But I, I talk about eight things that are critical to build trust. Now, I may not remember them all right now. But first of all, you've got to have the difficult, critical conversations with difficult, critical people individually. Yes. The influencer. You can't have them with everybody. But they claim one of the 15 people are either official influencers or unofficial influencers. Hmm. So you have conversations with those people, and then they'll, they'll, uh, uh, they'll uh, influence their circle of the other 14 or whatever. And you, so you don't have to have conversations with everybody. It's the influencers. Okay. So you, you have to sort that out. That's a judgment call to figure out who the influencers are. You pretty well know who they are. So you sit down with them. Now, when you sit down with them, you don't sit, talk to them on the fly. You prepare very carefully. You try to think of every eventuality. Then you do not talk to anybody unless you have more of a compassion for that person than whatever it is you want to accomplish by having a conversation with that person. And I'm telling you, that takes some praying. I was going to say, that would not always be easy. And if you don't get in that mode, it'd be better not to have the conversation because you're going to make it worse rather than better. And they can see it in your eyes. They can see it in your facial expressions. 
They can see it in your body language, whether or not you are really being sincere or you're trying to be an actor and not one of us are good enough actors to do that. And so that's one thing. And then you seek first to understand before being understood. I use a formula. Now, a formula is a bad thing unless it's from the heart. So I want to clarify that. It's got to come from the heart. But it's feel, felt, found. Feel, felt, found. And so if somebody comes to you steamed up about something, and you say, well, you know something? I understand how you feel. They can't believe they're hearing that. Half of the steam just evaporates. And then if you can go on and say, but you know something? I understand how I feel because I I felt the same way myself. Might not be the same thing, but something similar. And then at that point, all the emotion is gone and the trust has been built because they feel like you love them. And, And then you can say, but this is what I have found. Or if you made a mistake, you admit the mistake. The biggest mistake that any of us can ever make is not to admit a mistake. That's bigger than any mistake. So true. So quickly admit the mistake. But then, so you, you hear them, and, and I say, you, you ask questions. You know, before you're thinking of whatever pontificating you're going to do, you ask questions. You always maintain a respectful tone in the conversation. No matter how agitating mind, you stay in a respectful mode, respectful tone. And then once all of that has transpired, you're so well prepared that you will carefully and kindly, respectfully and candidly share what needs to be shared. And I'm telling you what, I would say that wins 97% of the time. Now, there's 3%, according to the secular world, and I believe it's true in the church world, that can be never satisfied no matter what you do. It can never be satisfied. But here's the problem. Because we don't want to have the painful conversations. There's another 30% that can look like those 3%. And so we decide, oh, I can't know since talking to them. That's not going to accomplish anything. And that is wrong. And even you have to talk to the 3%, and maybe talk to them repeatedly before you conclude that they are a three percenter. Mm. Don't write people off quickly. I love that. It does take a lot of courage. And it's one of the things I know that you've met Father Simon Lobo, uh, the pastor at St. Benedict Parish. And one of the things I admired about him is his willingness to, to have those crucial conversations. Yeah. I just admired his courage. He didn't like them any more than the next person. Nobody liked Nobody likes them, but he wouldn't back away from them because he knew that he was, as a leader, responsible to, ha- to have those conversations to break that's, through relationally. That's, that's the responsibility of leadership. You shouldn't be trying to be a leader if you're not willing to take on that responsibility. But here's the interesting thing, just to make everybody understand how, how challenging this is. I listened to a podcast recently of Patrick Lencioni, mm-hmm. who is the big leadership grew in the secular world with businesses. Here's what he said. He said, the number one problem with CEOs of big companies is their resistance to having the difficult conversation. So it's a, it's a, it's a systemic problem across the board. Now, when I, when I think of those 
difficult conversations, you know, I, I found over time that I was so sure what the outcome would be if I did it right. Yes. It wasn't going to be that much of a difficult conversation. Your confidence grew in your ability to have those conversations, to stay respectful, to pray. Now, let me just tell you, see, what people don't understand, even we've talked about what happened here in this place, in this yes. church, what they don't understand. There were people that I had to have conversations with over a period of weeks, some two or three hours at a time that would total up to 16 hours where there was no trust mm-hmm. until that trust was developed. And I sometimes would be so wiped out. It would be like somebody throwing me into a lake and I couldn't swim and I beat the lake dry trying to stay alive. You're exhausted after that's over with, you know? And I'd be so exhausted. I never want to go back there again. But what's that got to do with anything? I haven't, I haven't had, I haven't had to hang on a cross yet. The price to pay, and it's a painful price. But if we're not willing to pay the price, I people, I would say, if I'm not willing to do that, if I, if, if I can't stand the heat, I need to go to the kitchen. I'm not about to get out of the kitchen. You know, there's some people listening right now saying, oh, my gosh, I can't, I'm too busy. I'm no. too busy. I, I, I don't have that kind of time. Like, if I can't, if I can't have a 15-minute conversation with that person, I, I, I'm just, you don't understand. I'm, I'm really busy. You're too busy not to. Because I'll tell you what, if you don't have those conversations, it will create issues that are 10 times more time-consuming that you will not be able to avoid. Amen. They come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. And, and I know of so, look, in my consultations and mentoring pastors, I know of so many situations where the pastor does not want to take the time to, and will not even, the people who want to talk to him will not make time for him to listen to them. If they can't talk to leadership and be understood by leadership, they are going to talk. Right. Might not be to you. Oh, no, not you. All the wrong people. And that just causes a groundswell of problems. Do you know what our listeners, if you're hearing that banging in the background, when Pastor P gets jacked up, he starts pounding the podium, and now he's pounding his desk, and it's making me smile because I know how jacked up you get. <laughs> so I'm smiling inside. Because oh, you're so passionate about this stuff, and it's so true. And I know I can remember one time in my life where I didn't make the time. And, you know, we can always make excuses. And I had some great excuse, had a lot of responsibilities at work, but there was an issue and I didn't give it the time it deserved. And it went so bad. It went so bad. And it was all my fault. I mean, I could blame the other person for what he did and who he spoke to and how, but the truth was, I knew he was hurt. I knew he deserved my attention because I love the man. And I didn't make the time, and it went so bad, and well, it's right all my fault. Right along with that, Ron, we created a culture here where people could put on their communication card anything they wanted to. And we would say, listen, we want to hear it all. It could be criti- critical. It could be constructive criticism. It could be destructive criticism. It could be complimentary, because I took the position, somebody's going to learn from this. Mm. And maybe I will learn from it. 
And I will have a conversation when one of those cards indicate that we should have a conversation. And I wasn't the only one because we had a large staff of 20 people and we had other people who would have those conversations in their realm of responsibility. But when I would have the conversation and listen, and, and, and I would either do one or two things, I would either say, oh, you're absolutely right. Thank you for this. What's that do? That builds a little bit of trust, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And or it would be a teachable moment. Yes. So I could give an explanation that they had no idea about, which is totally understandable. So it's going to be win-win no matter what. I'm going to, the church is going to win. God's going to win. They're going to win. I'm going to win. Everybody's going to win. What is it to lose? <laughs> that is so true. I heard an expression one time, when you go into those types of conversations, be prepared to, to win or be won over. But yeah, listen, listen first, but go in, have a perspective. It's okay to have a perspective. But if somebody brings something to the table that changes your perspective, you better be prepared to change your perspective. Like and Here's one other thing that I think needs to keep be kept in perspective. I would take the position, even if I am 1% wrong, I'm not going to blame. I am going to take responsibility for that 1%. And that is liberating. You know, I got to tell you this, Ron. I read an article in the Globe and Mail a few years ago, and it was talking about the dark side of leadership. Okay. And that was the, that was the title of the article. And it had all kinds of big words that I didn't understand, but one of them was narcissistic. I understood that word and how that that is such a dark side of leadership. And boy, we get into something there that I won't get into right now, but, but that, that dictatorial controlling a kind of leadership that that's sometimes is based on narcissism is as a result of a very insecure, fearful person that is operating from a position of weakness rather than strength. And people, because they come on like gangbusters, say, oh, is he a strong leader? No, he's not. He's a weak leader. And that bombast that's coming, he's coming on strong with it's just as a result of his own fears and insecurities. So that is to compensate for all of that. And, and it causes culty situations. Culty situations can be in the Catholic Church. It can be in the Protestant Church, even though, the, even though neither one is a cult. But it can create a culty culture if we're not careful. And so anyway, uh, uh, where was I going with all of that? Now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Uh, well, let me say this as your and narcissism is a clinical personality disorder. So there's the narcissism narcissistic scale. We can fall into narcissistic behaviors, yeah. and then there's the personality disorders, and they're real. They're out there, and they'll yeah. take down your organization, oh. your ministry, your church. Under and this causes such frustration for everybody. A lot of people don't know what's going on, and they, right. they why are we all. Having, we're all in loggerheads here, and what's causing all this confusion? But here's the. But then, then this article went on to say, "Yes, talk about the bright side of leadership." Okay, and the bright side, they had one word to describe the bright side, and that word was humility. Now, I'm not talking about a, a backseat kind of humility. I'm talking about a humility that is open to learning. Mm -hmm. By the way, I got to say this. 
I have to be working harder at learning today at 81 years of age than I had to learn when I first started the ministry because I got to unlearn so much now that is not culturally relevant and does not speak the language of the culture. But And I'm not talking about compromising with the culture. I'm talking about speaking the language of the culture in order to connect with the culture. And I have got to be tenacious about learning, 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 learning. And I have young guys around me that on my team that I'm seeking to learn from. I ask them more questions than they ask me. And so that I can make sure that I understand what's going on in this world. But anyway, that's another subject. So he talked about the, the humility open to learning. When a person is a humble person, they're open to correction. They love correction because they want to grow. And they love it. They, they weigh well. Listen, I talk about feedback. Look upon feedback as gold. Mm. Look upon feedback as a gift. If you, if you, get, if you struck gold, what would you do? You, you, you try to dig for more gold. So if you're getting some maybe heavy-duty, harsh, critical feedback, don't rebel against it. Yes. Don't write it off. Seek to learn more to help you to grow and, and to become a better person. So they're open to feedback. They're, they, they look upon feedback as gold. They, they, are, uh, they build teams. They, they honor people because their humility is such that they want to see other people build. You know, when I talked about leadership is all about building trust. When I think of building this probably $20 million campus, you know, that we have over the, over the many phases and raising the money and all the plans and all the discussions and all the meetings and all the rest that had to take place to get us there. That building was a pretty comp. The building of that was pretty comprehensive. It's just as comprehensive to build trust. It's not something light and easy. It's something that has to be given a lot of thought, prayer, discussion, understanding. Oh, there's so much to it to build that trust. And here's the other thing about that. If you do not love your people by building trust, then you will tend to manipulate your people. That hurts just hearing that. Like some serious people are like that. That can sting if you reflect and you realize, gosh, maybe. And I was in that boat. The reason I know about this stuff is in my early days, I was on the wrong page. Pastor B, something you said earlier, I want to double back around to it because uh, this is uh, this is one of my experiences one day, and I don't know if it's true, so I'm going right to the source to confirm it. But back in the day when when you were at Moncton Wesleyan and I was living there, and I, I remember being going to your church, and I remember they had two different services. One of them was more traditional, and the other one was was more contemporary in terms of the music. Yes, and uh, and I'd go to mass one of the masses beforehand, and then I'd come over and enjoy your community with you. You went and to the mass because it was contemporary and you'd come to our tradition. <laughs> well, actually, I think that is end up how it happened, but not because it was contemporary. But one of the things, although we had beautiful music too, but one of the things that one of the people told me is they said to me, 
that Pastor B, and again, you're talking about unlearning some things and learning the language of the culture, not compromising to the culture, but learning to speak so that you can reach them. Somebody said to me, do you know what? Pastor B's preference is the old hymns, and you would show up in a beautiful suit and a tie every week. But for the contemporary service, you take off your tie, and somebody said, and he even undoes his top button. And he said, you have no idea how hard that is for Pastor B to do that, because that's not his favorite type of music, and he wants to wear a tie. <laughs> is that true? There's truth in that. But here, yes. here's something else that I think would be good for your listeners to hear. Yes. I highly value change. Mm-hmm. Now, it's just, as diff- it's just as difficult for me as it is for the most traditional person on the face of the earth. Mm. But I value it so highly, it makes it easy for me because I see the importance of it in connecting with the people that we need to be reaching. Listen, I got to tell you this. I preached a sermon late recently called Connecting the Dots. And I think a lot of Christ followers have difficulty connecting the dots. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. I see that there are followers of Christ, they're faithful followers of Christ, but maybe not so many full followers of Christ. Okay. Now, a full follower of Christ takes a position. It's never going to be about me because it was never a, with Jesus, it was never about him. It was he was the greatest statesman who ever lived. A statesman is somebody who's willing to do whatever is necessary, regardless of how it affects them personally. So there's absolutely no selfishness in the mix. None whatsoever. No traditional values, nothing that that would, if it's going to help us to see more people follow Christ. And so people would ask me over the years, how is it that that church continued to grow like it did? over such a long period of time. And I said, well, truthfully, I don't want to be deceptive. It's complex. It's somewhat complicated. But if you want me to give you a simple answer, this is a simple answer. Our people moved, generally speaking, from a selfish agenda to an unselfish agenda. They moved from a way of thinking that was dictated by, is this what I like? Is this what I'm not used to? Is this the way it's always been? Is this what makes me comfortable? Is this what I enjoy? Is this what my family enjoys? They move from that way of thinking to a total opposite way of thinking, which is whether I like it or not, whether it's my cup of tea or not, whether it's going to make me comfortable or not, It's not about me. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. If it can help us see more people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I am going to be 100% for it, no matter what I think of it. Listen, but, but here's the problem, Ron. Here's the problem. It really is. There's hardly anybody would disagree with what I just said, the importance of it. But here's what happens. The minute that push comes to shove and it's something to do with what they're used to, they don't even think about being a full follower of Christ when he said, not my will, 
Remember that? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, not my will. So wouldn't it stand a reason if I'm a full follower of Christ, it'll never, ever be about me or my lights or my will? Mm. Isn't that true? Amen. But here's what happened. We revert. The default is to go back to what we like, mm-hmm. regardless of if whether it's for the greater good or not. And, and, and I just see that happening all around. So when I, in my coaching of priests sometimes especially in the beginning I, I i love the oftentimes i'll i'll say if your church is wildly successful in five years what would it look like and don't put limits on yourself just just allow god's creativity to inspire you and so they'll yeah. and i'll ask them what are the three biggest obstacles and inevitably most pastors will say one of the obstacles is the people don't want it or the people are too busy or the and so it's the people and if I ask that, because I do, I ask the same question when I'm talking to a group of lay leaders. I'll say, with five years, if your church is wildly successful, what could it look like? And then I'll say, what are the three obstacles? And inevitably, one of those three obstacles will be the pastor doesn't want it. And so here you have the, the leadership doesn't think the people want it. The people think the leadership doesn't want it. And there's this. So and that's not abnormal, is it? Listen, I say to I said to our people over and over again. We're never, ever going to do in this church what I like. We're going to do in this church what works, whether I like it or not. And what works in relation to our mission statement, which was, and it's probably not even a mission statement or a vision statement. I created it long before I ever heard tell of those things. I'll call it a purpose statement, which is to use every available means at every available time in every available place to reach every available person. Everything we are and everything we do is for that purpose because Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now I want to start pounding on my desk. I'm so excited. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Don't get too carried away now. (laughs) Those are such great principles. I have another great friend and mentor of mine, uh, Mike Timmis, who is also in his 80s. And he is just as full and on fire as you are. And honestly, I, that's exactly who I want to be as I continue to serve <laughs> in God's mission field and, and do this great stuff. So what are some of the things that as, as you continue to mentor, I'm so grateful that you continue to take your experiences, you continue to grow, you continue to learn, and you continue to invest in others. Where does that come from? Why, why don't you just retire? Please, please, yeah, please. Listen to what you said earlier. Just yes. a few yeah, please. A couple of minutes ago. But I've come to conclude, life is not about pleasure. Life is about purpose. And when you have a purpose that you think is the right purpose, that is your pleasure. I come to this office every morning at 5.30 in the morning. And I get home around 5.30 in the evening. And, and, and look, to sit around twiddling your thumbs, I would... I'd sooner be in the bad place. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I had to interject that. Now you better go back to your, your question. <laughs> I, well, I, I was just, I want people to hear because so often I, I'll see people get to a place in life and they'll say, oh, you know what? I've done my part. It's time for the, you know, I just. That, that will destroy you. And I've seen, look, I know of so many pastors 
who, because they were so pressured for so many years with all the responsibility they had, <clears throat> they were just looking forward to retirement. And, and for a month or two, it's like being on a vacation. But that's about as long as it's going to be enjoyable. And, and the fire will start burning. If you've got a call on you of any kind, and it doesn't have to be a call to ministry, as I'm thinking, but a call that is of, of some importance. The most miserable people I know are pastors who are doing nothing mm. in retirement. They're miserable. Mm. What's the point? <laughs> I love you. So I want, to, I want you to just share briefly, what type of work are you doing now? And are there leaders out there that can connect with what you're doing? Let's talk a little bit about that. Because honestly, I know there's people that are so jacked up right now. They're saying, how do I connect with this fellow? Because I need some <laughs> well, of that. Well, go on our website, ldbuckingham.com. Okay. And that has a whole lot of information. has a lot of what people have found in being a part of the whole thing. And also, uh, we, we do mentoring uh, in different parts of the world. But, but before COVID, we were doing mentoring. Mainly, I'm so concerned about Atlantic Canada here that I focused on Atlantic Canada because there's such decline, as you know, we all know, in all groups, it seems yes. like nobody's escaping it, really. So we can't be judgmental about that. But, but by the way, but at the same time, here's the good news. I remember reading in the Moncton paper uh, where this church closed and they said, as, as all churches are declining. And so we just didn't have the resources to keep going. Well, all churches are not declining. We're seeing some churches going forward today like never before, even here in Atlantic Canada, in the history of Atlantic Canada. But it all has to do every time with leadership, not just being a pastor and all the things you do as a pastor, but pastors who learn leadership. And we can all learn leadership. It's not just a natural thing altogether. That helps maybe, but we can learn it. So anyway, uh, uh, where was it? What was I talking about? I get see, I get these rabbit trails because there's some things that I'm so fired up about and so consumed about. Uh, you remember where we we're going? Yeah, we're just telling people about your like oh, your yes, leadership yes, yes. institute okay. and how you're helping people. You're doing yeah. so, we do the mentoring uh, over in in some cases over we used to over a period of year, but now we have two day mentoring sessions where we invite pastors of all groups. We've had everybody. Catholic, Protestant, Anglican, whatever, in our mentoring. And uh, in fact, it wasn't Father Simon. Who's the other priest that's in St. Benedict? Father Alex? Yeah, Alex. Father he Alex Kaladi. Mentoring. And he was just on fire. Yeah, and he is. Coming back with ideas that he'd got from the mentoring and how he applied it, and so on and so on. It was exciting to hear him being so inspired. <laughs> he by is a rock star. Oh my gosh, he's going to make a difference. I, yeah. I thought the world of it. So then that's one thing. Uh, and now we've got it online as well. Good. And the online in, has, in some in parts of it, is better than the, the face-to-face. And then other parts of the face-to-face is better. But the online is we have it broken down into 35 modules where they can watch it for 5 to 15 minutes, the module. Yes. And then there's probing questions at the end of each module that gets them to think through what they've just heard in relation to leadership. Now, I should say this about this mentoring. The first half of that mentoring is all about the kind of leadership that is necessary if things are going to get turned around. 
And here's my conviction. Any situation could be turned around, given time, with the right kind of leadership. Any situation. But it's got to be given time. And there's got to be patience and understanding and building trust and love and all those things that we've talked about. So uh, uh, we, we, we have those models uh, with the leadership component. And then we talk about methodology. This can be applied in business world. It can be applied in the church world of any kind. Methodology that can see things go forward. The creative person, even though they might seem it's directed to an evangelical church, we say, as we call it, <clears throat> if they get a little imagination, they can figure out ways that this can be implemented in any situation. And I not only mentor pastors, uh, the McCain Leadership Institute has involved me in mentoring uh, business leaders, which is crazy, you know, for a pastor to be mentored. In fact, I had somebody tell me yesterday they had uh, been told as a result of an assessment, it was, it, was a, it was the best one they'd heard, which is, I shouldn't Doesn't be. surprise <laughs> me. That's my humility coming through. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> so, so uh, that is another big thing. Now, the other thing that we do that we've seen some glorious turnarounds in churches of all kinds. Uh, we do consultations, and the consultation is a weekend deal. We send to them a self-study to be done before the consultation begins. I go, by the way, I do a covert visit before the consultations. Nobody knows I'm coming. Here's the crazy thing about those consultations. I ask, what's the greatest thing about this church? That's one of the questions. And they say, oh, the people are so friendly. Everybody's so friendly. I visit the church, and the people don't know me. Nobody speaks to me. <laughs> and then they're so friendly. Well, it's very easy to figure out. You watch them come in. They're hugging and loving on each other. But they don't even speak to the visitor. That is somewhat sometimes intimidating. So we have to explain how to break through all of that and so on and so on. But and, and, and that, you know, if people come, can come into a welcoming atmosphere, they don't notice the negatives once they get into that service that there could be. If they come into an unwelcoming atmosphere, it could be the very same kind of service. All they see is the negatives. Mm -hmm. So we got to break things down and, and break down the barriers so that they will be receptive to the truth that will set them free. Pastor B, we are definitely going to do this again. I love any time we get to spend together. Thank you for how you continue to invest in the in the church of every stripe and take your wisdom and experience and just inject it into the next generation. Keep it up. Listen, i got to tell you one story. I know you got to go, but I'm going to tell you one story. I preached in an old line denomination, and I talked about change and the need for change, and they hadn't changed in 500 years. <laughs> And, and so I'm just wondering how this is going to go, you know, but I just felt I'm here to help the situation. So I got to tell the truth. Anyway, when I finished speaking in a very liturgical, formal kind of situation, they stood and gave a standing ovation. I about had a heart attack. I couldn't believe it. But then I thought, what in the world is going on here? Here's, here's the deal. People love hearing about change until you try to change the thing they love 
<laughs> Amen. Amen. So to all you leaders out there that are staring down the need for change, maybe in some situations that are a bit toxic and, and there's a deficit of trust, I hope the wisdom that was shared today will give you the courage to have the conversations, to love on people, to begin to embrace those difficult situations that leaders are called to wade into, to yep. earn the right to lead in a way that people come with you. Well, I got to say one more thing. And we may unpack this the next time if we, if we, yeah. but one of the big things that is not an easy thing. Yes. But it is people have to understand the why regarding the what and the how. And we all have heard that from Simon Sinek and other people like that. But that is not just something that's going to come without any difficulty. That's a challenge itself. But here's the deal. Once they do understand the why, the what is a simple matter. Amen. So that's where we're going to pick up where when we get together again and do this again. So that'll be a real treat for people. So thanks again for making the time. God bless the work. Thank you. Well, I can't think of a better way to start your week. Thank you to all of you who make the time to listen to these podcasts. If you think today's episode is something that a friend would enjoy, please make sure you forward it. Rate the podcast and please leave a few comments. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.